Now please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Our text for this morning is Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Let's go ahead and begin by reading the passage together. Philippians 4, verses 2 through 3. Actually, I need to turn there in my Bible. All right, here we go. The Apostle Paul writes this. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I absolutely love the church. And I mean I, I love the church. I really don't know how to say it enough. The body of Christ amazes me. See, back before I was a Christian, one of the concepts that I really struggled with as I started to understand all the implications that came with being an actual disciple of Jesus Christ was the impact that that decision was going to have on my relationship with my friends. Jesus talks about this quite plainly in the Gospels. He's very clear that true and genuine discipleship can disrupt one's relationship with those who are closest to them. He says, for instance, in Matthew 10, verses 34 through 38, Do not think I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I understood what Jesus was saying in those statements. I understood that if I really committed to the kind of faith that Jesus was demanding, then I was going to change. And I understood that as I changed, my relationship with those closest to me would change as well. I didn't like that. The friends I had growing up had been like brothers to me. We had grown up together. We shared the same history, the same experiences. We shared the same tastes. And if I followed Christ, I was going to lose all that. We understood each other, and I was going to lose that. I don't know what you wrestled over when you came to Christ, what you had to lose in order to gain Christ. But that was it for me. That was what tripped me up on the way to the cross. In fact, I felt the pain of that separation sharply enough that even when I did finally decide to forfeit everything for the sake of knowing Christ, I shed tears of sorrow, and it wasn't over my sin, but over how much I thought I was losing. It wasn't an easy decision at first. And then I met the church. You see, I didn't realize it at the time, but I wasn't just losing a set of relationships. I was gaining a whole other set as well. And Jesus talks about this too. Mark 10, Peter acknowledges that the disciples have left everything to follow Jesus, and he wants to know what they've gained for all their troubles. And Jesus answers, he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. 
That's key. I, I know a lot of times I point out that Christians can forget that our hope is in heaven primarily and not on this earth. But it works the other way around too. Sometimes we can forget that the gospel doesn't only hold out hope for eternal life. It promises blessings in this life too. And a significant part of those right now promises are the relationships that we find in the church. I missed that part in my Bible. I tell you, I remember walking into my church in Nashville, though, and realizing it. Not only was there this entire group of people who understood what had happened to me when I believed and who also loved Christ like I loved Him, but they loved and embraced me as well. They hardly even knew me. And they were inviting me over to their home and asking me questions about myself and taking an interest in my life. Like I knew my friends had liked me, but this church loved me. It was more than just enjoying the same television shows or sharing the same hobbies or, or sense of humor. The things we discussed and what they shared with me was meaningful. I tell you, I, I fell in love instantly. I had never been a part of anything like that. And from then on, every time the church doors were open, I would try to be there. There wasn't anyone that I enjoyed being with more than my brothers and sisters in Christ. Ever since then, I've basically made it my mission to do whatever I can to serve and strengthen this amazing and unique group of people. Even church planting. I, you know, a lot of people get into church planting for the advancement of the gospel, meaning they do it because they're passionate about seeing people come to Christ. And so they plant churches in areas where there isn't a strong gospel witness. I have to tell you, honestly, that's not why I wanted to plant a church. No, the reason why I got into church planting was because I wanted to take what I had experienced in Nashville and share it with Christians who hadn't got to experience it yet. I did it for the church. It's sad to say, but I soon learned that what I got to experience in Nashville wasn't a normal experience for many, maybe even most, Christians. What I had experienced was a family. It was this body of people that I not only belonged to, but who actually cared about me as well. They loved me enough to correct me, and I knew that they loved me enough that when they corrected me, I was willing to accept it. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of churches that function that way. They either function like a social club at best, sort of a loose affiliation of like-minded people, perhaps working towards a common goal, or at worst, they function like an event. It's just a place, church is just a place you go to to hear an uplifting or inspiring message once a week. But the idea of belonging to one another, of bearing with one another through thick and thin, that's practically unheard of. And that's what a family does. Your brothers and sisters might irritate you, right? They may know how to get under your skin. You may think that your Uncle Joe is a little weird, but you still get together on Thanksgiving and eat a turkey together, right? The bonds you share go deeper than mere preference. And it means you don't run from your family at the first sign of trouble. Quite the opposite. Instead, you try to make it work in spite of how much they annoy you at times. I know a lot of people that find their family insufferable, but they still try to make the relationship work. 
In fact, it will even cause them a lot of stress. They'll talk about going to see family and how stressful it is, and that's because they feel like they have to try to make it work. They can't just cut the relationship off on a whim. Listen, that's how it's supposed to work in the church, too. We're supposed to be a family. These people here in this room, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. They are the fulfillment of this promise that the one who leaves everything to follow Christ will receive a hundredfold now in this time, brothers and sisters and mothers and children. And this means that we should not only love each other enough to speak the truth to one another, but that we should also love each other enough to bear with one another and work out our differences. I am incredibly passionate about seeing this principle work itself out at Cornerstone. I am incredibly passionate about seeing this church function like a family. And that means this morning's topic is one that's very dear to my heart. And I'm talking, of course, about the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement. This is now our fourth week discussing gospel-minded agreement from Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. And I've said that in this passage we find the attitude, the action, and the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement. The attitude, of course, can be broken down into three parts, and that's trust, unity, and urgency. Essentially, Paul hears this report about these two feuding women, and he doesn't automatically chalk up their disagreement to sin or even general unbelief. Instead, he takes their history into account and assumes they're working in good faith. This means that they're still united together with Paul in Christ. He even calls them his fellow workers. And since they're still united together in Christ, Paul considers the resolution of this dispute to be an incredibly urgent matter. He doesn't just ask them to agree. He beseeches or implores them to agree. This is an incredibly mature approach to disagreements in the body of Christ. Sin isn't the only reason why we'll struggle to agree with each other. We'll also struggle to agree because we simply don't know everything. That's more or less where Paul begins with Yodia and Syntyche. He assumes the disagreement isn't rooted in any kind of willful rebellion against Christ. The problem, rather, is that they just don't know everything yet. They're finite creatures, and they're each struggling to know how to best serve the Lord. This leads Paul to prescribe a particular course of action for these two women. And that's to agree in the Lord. As Christians, Jesus is our common ground. He is our head, our Lord. And not only this, but He is God incarnate, meaning He not only knows all things, but He will always declare truth. So when it comes to discerning what is right or wrong, what is good or bad, better or best, no matter the situation, the authority is always Christ. He, we must yield to His demands. And this makes him the mediator in our disputes. So if we're going to find agreement with each other, then we need to follow the same instructions that Paul gives these two women right here. We must agree in the Lord. And as I've explained, this primarily includes two things. First, it means that we must check our motives to see if our conclusions are being driven by sin. Because that's a very real possibility. It may be we can't agree because... We're twisting the scripture to fit our own preconceived notions of right and wrong, better and best. So we do need to check our hearts to see if they're submitted to the Lord first. And then second to that and related to that, 
We must go to the Bible and ask ourselves what it has to say on the topic. After all, as much as we would like to, we can't just ask Jesus to settle our disputes directly since he's not physically here with us presently. And so in lieu of his absence, we need to go to the next best thing, and that's the collection of writings that Peter tells us is not the result of mere human interpretation, but which is the product of men who are carried along by the Spirit of God. And that's the Holy Scriptures, the inspired Word of God, the Bible. But as I pointed out last week, this just raises another question. And that is, whose interpretation of the Bible is the right one? Which interpretation is the one we need to consider binding? Again, the problem is that even when sin isn't involved, we're still going to be prone to error due to our limitations as creatures. This is true even with respect to understanding the Scriptures. No one's knowledge of the Bible is perfect. And so we're still prone to get it wrong sometimes, even when our heart is submitted to God. And so when you have two brothers or sisters who believe that they're genuinely seeking the Scriptures for answers and still can't agree, what do you do then? We discovered at least part of the answer to that question last week as we discussed the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement. And the answer is the church. It's the body of Christ. This bears itself out when after addressing Yodi and Syntyche, Paul turns his attention to each and every individual member of the church at Philippi and says, verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Basically, Paul instructs the church to step in and mediate this dispute. And as I pointed out last week, that's happening at a corporate level. The entire church is involved in the mediation. And it's also occurring at the personal level as well. Each and every member is personally involved at some level. Now, this still begs the question, how does that work? What does this look like practically? Or even better yet, why does Paul provide this particular instruction? How does the church's involvement supplement this effort to agree in the Lord? And this is where things get sort of interesting and I think a little messy as well. I don't know if you remember, but last week I said that one of the challenges that comes with discerning God's judgment on any particular issue is that it often requires considering multiple passages at the same time and harmonizing their instructions together. Well, that's exactly what you need to do with this instruction to get involved. Paul tells the church at Philippi to mediate this dispute, and he seems to imply that even the individual members of the church should be involved in this process at some level. What he doesn't do is articulate how that works or even why that works. You have to find that out from other passages in the New Testament. Paul apparently didn't think it was necessary to go into those details in this particular context, but I would rather I would gather it probably is needed in ours. Like I said last week, as a whole, Christians in our culture aren't very good at handling disagreement. 
We're incredibly independent by nature. We see our relationship with God as our business, and everyone else needs to butt out of it. That attitude spreads into our approach to interpersonal conflicts in the church. If we have a disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ, then that's between the two of us. And everyone else needs to stay out of it. And vice versa, right? It works the other way too. If you're having a dispute with someone else, don't expect me to get involved. You need to handle that yourself. Even worse, we probably don't even try to resolve those disagreements when they do arise. It's not just that we don't want other people involved, but we just assume, ignore the problem, and let the relationship burn to the ground, then deal with it. And the result is an exponentially fractured church. This shouldn't be. Division in the church not only hinders our active proclamation of the gospel, it hinders our passive proclamation as well, as the world looks into this body proclaiming a message of peace and reconciliation, all while fighting and separating from each other. It just doesn't make sense. And we can't let this happen. So what does it look like practically for the church to mediate disputes in the body of Christ? Why even does Paul issue this instruction in addition to this command to agree in the Lord? In short, how does the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement actually work? And that's what I want to explore with you over the next couple of weeks from several passages in the New Testament. So uh, get ready to start thumbing through your Bibles more than you normally do because we're going to be moving around a little bit here this morning. Before we jump into this, I want to give you a heads up on, on, on two separate accounts. First, I want you to understand that I'm mostly talking about the mechanics of mediation as we discuss these passages. If we wanted to, we could spend a week or even two talking about the tack one should take when trying to help mediate a dispute. You know, we could discuss when to get involved and how to get involved, all that. And related to that, we could spend another week discussing the sort of attitudes we should bring with us and how to come to those attitudes before we get involved. But we're not going to do that this morning. Instead, we're going to take a big picture look at the mechanics of mediation. And then second, I want you to understand that I'm trying to do what I've described to you over the past couple of weeks. I'm trying to take several different passages and blend them together into a coherent system. So I'm taking some of these edge pieces that I've talked about, and I'm using my reason to try to fill in the middle space between those pieces. Now, obviously, I'm not going to do this perfectly. right? My reason, my knowledge of the Scripture is imperfect. It's flawed. And that's where you come in. It's even where you can actually start doing the process that I'm going to outline for you here today. I'm going to submit my understanding of this topic. And then if you disagree with what I'm saying, if you perceive a few holes in my argument, perhaps if there are scripture passages that I'm forgetting to take into account, then we can discuss it. And we can sharpen one another's understanding of the scripture. So I want to attach these two caveats to what I'm about to say. But that being said, let's go ahead and look at the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement applied. The way I want to do this is by taking a look at a couple of different passages that speak to different aspects of mediation sort of independently and then layer them on top of each other as we go. In the first of these two passages... 
is Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, and the second is Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. So if you would, please turn to Ephesians 4, verse 11. This is a passage that I talk about all the time. I think you probably know that by now. And part of the reason why I talk about it all the time is because of the impact it had on me so early on as I became acquainted with this beautiful organization of people we call the church, the body of Christ. In it, Paul has just exhorted the Ephesians to put on the attitudes that will enable them to maintain the unity, quote, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So it's a passage that's really dealing with the same topic that we're discussing over here in Philippians. He's talking about unity. And starting in verse 11, we see why Paul makes this exhortation, why he's so concerned that they put on these attitudes that allow the church to maintain the unity of the Spirit. He says, verses 4 through 16, And he, referring to Jesus, gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In this passage, Paul uh, describes the basic function and operation of the church. This morning we were talking about the concept of local church membership in Sunday school. We were discussing the purpose of church membership. Well, it really comes back to what Paul describes here in Ephesians 4. What we learn here is that the church functions a bit like a body. Paul even calls it a body in verse 12 and then again in verse 16. And like a body, it has different parts. There's the head, which in this instance is Christ. And then you have its members. And I don't mean that in the sense of membership. I mean body parts. These parts all have a different function. You have various types of leaders, for instance, in verse 11. They're not all the same, right? You have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers. Verse 12, we learn learn that they're given to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So again, the entire body is actually doing the work of the ministry and the leaders are given to equip the rest of the church for that purpose. And what is that work of the ministry that the saints are doing? And again, in this particular context, we find the answer in the rest of the passage. They are speaking the truth in love. Verse 15. So that they might grow up into every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. This is to occur, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and listen here, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is really critical. I said a moment ago that Paul urges the church to adopt the attitudes that will 
allow them to maintain the unity of the Spirit earlier in chapter 4. What I didn't explain is why he urged the church to do that. And the answer comes at the end of chapter 3 where he states that he prays that the Ephesians might know the height and breadth and length and depth of the love of Christ. You go through the rest of chapter 4, and here we discover how this all comes together. He wants them to adopt these attitudes because the church collectively works together to help one another attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's a corporate effort. Their leaders supply the data. The members then use it to help each other, listen now, to help each other agree in the Lord. He's praying, he's asking them to put on these attitudes that allow them to maintain the unity of the Spirit because as they maintain the unity of the Spirit, they'll grow in the knowledge of the Son of God. Basically, what Paul recognizes is that the Spirit indwells the corporate body of Christ. That he equips them all differently to serve a different function, but when these various parts are brought together then verse 16, the whole body makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And of course, this is an assertion that's backed up in a couple of other places in the New Testament as well. 1 Corinthians 12, for instance, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4. They all affirm that the Spirit uniquely equips each member for the mutual edification of the saints. And so it says each member is engaged in the body, speaking the truth to one another in love, That the body builds itself up in love. The best way I can describe it, the church is kind of like a brain. And each of its members function like a single neuron within that structure. None of them contain all the information that's needed for the body to function. They all contain only part of the information. But you put them together and have them start exchanging this information with each other. And you almost arrive at a single consciousness, a singular way of thinking. That's how the church is supposed to work. So if you want to know why Paul gives this exhortation for the entire church to help mediate this dispute with Yodia and Syntyche, and if you want to understand why the structural cohesion of the church is such a vital concern, I think this passage gives you a pretty good answer. The entire body needs to be engaged because the body only grows, verse 16, right, Ephesians 4, as it is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. Again, listen to me very closely here because this is going to be a foundational point moving forward into our discussion, especially as we move into next week's discussion. One of the reasons why we must strive to maintain the unity of the church is because of the unique contribution of each each individual part of the body. We can't go and start haphazardly lopping off body parts and think that the body is still going to be healthy. It doesn't work that way. We each have a unique contribution to offer, a unique role to play in the building up of the body. And to the degree that you start removing parts, the whole body suffers. So I think we're starting to fill in part of the picture. Paul wants the entire body 
involved because the Spirit indwells the entire body of Christ and He's uniquely equipped each member to help the body grow in the knowledge of Christ. I may be a pastor, but you still know some things about the Bible that I don't. And vice versa. And not only that, but even with the information we do share, you may have a different kind of insight to offer on it because of the way the Holy Spirit has put you together. And it's as we work with one another, each of us sharing what we've learned and interacting with this information in accord with our unique giftings that we all together, quote, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So, again, though, how does this work practically? We can see kind of the theory, but this still doesn't answer what happens when two people like Yodia and Syntyche can't seem to agree. What happens then? And that's where Matthew 18 comes in. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18, verse 15. I'd imagine that most of you are already familiar with this passage. The subject is division. I think that may be an unrecognized element in this passage. A lot of times we think, when we think of this passage, we're thinking that it deals primarily with unrepentant sin. And while it does have something to do with that, it's dealing with an ongoing sin against a fellow brother in Christ. The one brother is going to the other, and he's asking him to stop. And Jesus is describing the process to use to mediate this dispute. So it's a little different than what's happening with Yodi and Syntyche. It doesn't appear that Yodi and Syntyche are, uh, have sinned against each other in any way, but still working with principles, Right? This passage would seem to describe the process of mediation in a scenario such as this. What does that process look like? Jesus explains, verses 15 through 20. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So what's described in this passage is this escalating process of mediation. First, the brother goes one-on-one to the one who sinned against him and he tries to settle the dispute himself. And when he's unable to settle it himself, he asks someone else to get involved. And basically, it would seem like this other brother, the sinning brother, is resisting their counsel. He's saying either, no, I won't repent, Or even, I don't have anything to repent of. I haven't sinned here. The first brother and his witness disagree. And so Jesus says at this point, it needs to be taken to the church. He says, tell it to the church, 
Step three. And then step four, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Basically, he says, kick them out. That's the same step that Paul takes with a brother who's engaged in unrepentant sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 5. Only if you notice in that context, he doesn't really go through steps 1 through 3. There's actually no complaint brought to the rest of the church. It's not a sin occurring between members. And Paul accelerates the process. Again, different passages giving us different insights on what to do with sin and division in the body of Christ. Now, once again, there doesn't seem to be any sin taking place between Yodia and Syntyche. But I believe this passage still outlines for us the process of mediation in their dispute. And if so, this is really important because it helps flesh out for us just exactly how and when the various members at Philippi are supposed to get involved. In other words, it's not as if Paul would say, you all need to go individually, one-on-one to Yodia and Syntyche, and intervene personally. You know, get, ask them what's going on, have them tell the whole story, and have them do that 50 different times. Rather, it would seem that what Paul would envision is Yodia and Syntyche working on the issue personally. And then when they can't get it sorted out, they ask one or two other people to get involved and help them agree. And then if they still can't work it out, it would come before the entire church and there'd actually be a hearing on the dispute. Now, if that sounds weird or extreme, I hate to say it, but that's probably a sign of the moral and doctrinal decline of the church. We, th we think it's weird for the body to discuss matters of doctrine formally. Or we think that the church is overstepping its bounds and mediating a resolution to a personal dispute. Listen, friends, Paul didn't think that was weird or overbearing. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul chastises the church for not stepping in and resolving an actual legal matter between two brothers in Christ. Again, he's concerned about how these types of divisions in the church look to the world, how it hinders the proclamation of the gospel, and he actually tells them, are you not capable of settling these lawsuits yourselves? I mean, don't you realize that you're going to judge angels? What are you going to a bunch of unregenerate pagans for? And how do you think that looks to the world, that you don't know how to resolve this? this? This same sort of concept occurs in James also. It would appear that the early church saw themselves, listen to this, the early church saw themselves as so distinct from society that they wouldn't even settle their legal disputes in the law courts of that day. Like Israel, they saw the Roman legal system as a foreign jurisdiction and they preferred to function under their own system of government whenever possible. And that's what they did by agreeing to settle their disputes in-house under the authority and direction of the local church. That's sort of wild, isn't it? But that's how seriously Paul took division in the church. He said we need to settle our matters in-house. 
So again, how does this work? I think you can see it quite plainly. Say, Euodia is the one that goes to Syntyche. If Syntyche then sees Euodia's point and agrees with her, hey, great, dispute is over, right? If Syntyche disagrees, though, then Euodia has to find someone else in the church who's willing to go with her and try to get Syntyche on the same page. And guess what? If Euodia can't find anyone to, uh, to go with her, because they all agree with Syntyche, then guess what Yodia needs to do? She probably needs to go back and entertain why Syntyche believes what she does. Because Yodia may not be thinking about the issue clearly. The whole rest of the church seems to side with Syntyche. Now, if she can find someone and Syntyche doesn't listen, and then she and her friend take the issue to the church, and they also side with Yodia. Then what does Syntyche need to do? She needs to really think long and hard about her position. Because the rest of the church agrees with Yodia. I think this process is made more impactful when you look at what's going on down in verses 18 and 21. You see this part down in 18 through 21 about binding and loosing? That doesn't seem to be about church membership, as so many suppose. Binding someone to membership or loosing them from it. It seems rather to refer to the church's authority, to their ability to make judgments that are binding on the individual. What they are bound to keep, what they're not bound to keep. Binding and loosing. This is how rabbinic literature tended to use these terms. It spoke of the rabbi's ability to declare what a person must do and what they are free to do according to the word of God. And that seems to be how Jesus uses it as well back in Matthew 16 when he transferred this kind of authority to Peter and the rest of the apostles. He's referring to apostolic authority. What they say is binding. What they say is you're free to do is you're free to do. Overall, Jesus is saying here in Matthew 18 that he's investing the church with that type of authority to declare what the disciple is required to do and what they are not required to do. And that is something that's most definitely needed in the church because, again, the Bible doesn't spell out the right course of action to take in every single situation in uh, great detail. Instead, it requires the harmonization of different passages as we bring them all together to bear on a particular issue. So if you want to find a chapter and verse, for instance, that says that Christians shouldn't use cocaine, you're not going to find it. But what you will find are passages that speak about the importance of sober-mindedness, meaning cocaine use is prohibited by implication. And so when the church gathers and through careful deliberation applies those type of passages to issues like the use of narcotics, Matthew 18 says the decision is binding. The individual in question needs to submit to the church's ruling on the matter. In verses 19 and 20, we discover why. There, Jesus talks about granting the disciples anything they ask. And you can't divorce that from the context. This is not a blanket statement where Jesus is promising the equivalent of a blank check, so long as you can find someone to agree with you on what you're asking for. Because that's not the context. 
The context is the reconciliation process. And in context, he's referring specifically to the church seeking wisdom from God as they deliberate on the proper judgment together. He words the promise broader than that because he's wanting to emphasize the Father's willingness to grant his disciples anything they need. He's pointing to the lavishness of God's love. So there's trust in this process, but the point is to apply that concept to this deliberation process specifically. And in verse 20, he says that when they do this, when the body of Christ asks for God's help in this process, he will answer this request since, quote, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That's a pretty astounding statement. Because what it seems to say is that Jesus is promising to aid or superintend this deliberation process. He's saying that when the church approaches this process in humility and faith, resting on Christ and seeking his will, he will guide the church through their discussions and bring them to the appropriate decision. Again, this is pretty crazy to think about. Uh, for instance, it would seem that early in the church there were these prophecies taking place, for example. Only the church didn't necessarily understand how to apply them. Like the Holy Spirit tells Agabus that Paul is going to be delivered over to the Gentiles once he reaches Jerusalem. And that's a testimony that seems to be affirmed by multiple churches as Paul is traveling from one city to another. Okay, so that's what's going to happen, but what do we do with that? Does that mean that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem? What, do we do, what are we to do in light of that information? Should he just stay away? According to what Paul says in Acts 20, verse 22, the answer seems to be no. Instead, he says that he's constrained by the Spirit to travel to Jerusalem, even in light of these prophecies. The Holy Spirit is both telling Paul that he will be delivered to the Gentiles at Jerusalem and that Paul still needs to go to Jerusalem. How does that all work practically? How do they know that the Holy Spirit is saying this? I don't know that we have the entire picture filled in, right, from the book of Acts. But I think we may see a part of the picture given in 1 Corinthians 14. There, Paul describes this scene where the church appears to be deliberating over prophecies made to the church. Perhaps they're weighing whether or not they're legitimate prophecies. Perhaps they're discussing how to act in light of what these prophecies claim. And it would seem that Jesus is saying that when the church comes to these kind of deliberations, in humility, collectively seeking his will by his grace and mercy, he will guide them through this process and help them arrive at the right decision. So the church doesn't only have the authority to declare what is binding, but it's invested with this authority because it's Jesus himself who's guiding the deliberation process. This brings out a whole new level to what it means to agree in the Lord. Does it not? What Matthew 18 seems to indicate is that to disregard the collective witness of the church is to disregard the Lord Jesus himself. And that should make sense because, again, the same spirit indwells the entire body of Christ. So if the entire body of Christ, or at least close to it, 
comes to you and says, we've heard your case and we believe that the Lord says this in this situation and you ignore them, there's a pretty good chance that you're disregarding the word of Christ himself. Now, I say only a pretty good chance because there are some caveats attached to this, right? For example, Jesus notes here that the two or three who are gathered must be gathered, quote, in my name. That's huge because what it indicates at the very least is A, these are actual believers and B, they're submitted believers. You throw either of those conditions out and it's fair to say that the decision isn't binding because Christ isn't superintending the process. There's an element of obedience and faith, humility that's required for this promise and sad to say, but that condition probably isn't met in many churches today. You know, where congregational meetings on exactly these types of issues are often noted more for the heat they generate than the light. So again, you need to read the the scripture carefully. These aren't blanket statements. But still, what this passage is saying is that when those conditions are met, then to disregard the proclamation of the church is an incredibly, incredibly dangerous thing to do. In last week's message, I tried to shake your confidence in your interpretation of the Scripture. I said that the Scripture is infallible, but your interpretation is not. The Scripture is clear, but your thinking is not. And I said that this isn't to say that the Scripture isn't knowable, because it is. It's just that our interpretive pride often leads us to ignore the very process that the Scripture lays out for making its meaning known. I even pointed out that uh, these uh, various evangelical leaders who've converted to Catholicism and how they'll point to the doctrinal confusion in evangelicalism and they'll say, Sola Scriptura sounds good in theory, but it doesn't work practically because we can't seem to agree on what the Scripture says. They'll recognize that there's some other element at play in interpretation that must be accounted for, and they find solace in the Catholic Church's teaching that the Pope and the Church Councils function as an inspired interpreter of the Scripture. I even noted that what these examples show us is that it's possible for the Protestants' belief in the clarity of Scripture to actually undermine the Christian's confidence in the clarity of Scripture if that doctrine is not employed properly. Well, here's the scary part. Are you ready for it? Don't string me up right away. Hear me out first. But here's the thing. Those evangelical leaders who defect are partly right. Now, I will tell you straight out, I'm being provocative here. I would gather you all know me well enough by now to realize that I believe the Roman church to be an apostate church. But I'll say it again, just so we're clear. Roman Catholicism is a false religion. I'm not going to encourage anyone to convert to Catholicism. right? But that said, while these leaders may have been wrong to convert to Rome, they're still right about a couple of things. They're right in recognizing that there is another element involved in the interpretation of Scripture. 
which makes this idea of sola scriptura a bit more confusing than it seems at first blush. And that element is the interpreter. Yes, the scripture may be inspired. The problem is that you have flawed interpreters. It's like I said last week, the problem isn't with the brightness of the moon and the stars. The problem is that there's a smudge on the telescope. And the question that they're raising is, what good is it to say that the scripture is clear when the mind of the interpreter is not? How can we say that the Bible alone is our authority when the truth is that our minds are so dim and our hearts so corrupted by sin that we're bound to distort its meaning on our own? What they're asserting is that the, the idea of Scripture alone as our authority is meaningless because it's impossible for us to know what the Scripture says without first filtering it through our own corrupt minds. Listen, friends, if anyone can sympathize with those questions, it should be Reformed Christians. I mean, we believe in the inherent corruption of mankind. Total depravity is a fundamental part of our theological DNA. So yeah, why should I trust my own interpretation of the Scripture? After all, Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the implication is that I don't even fully understand the depravity of my own heart. My sin runs so deep. My sin nature goes so deep that it causes me to distort the truth in ways that aren't even perceptible to me. I mean, that's the whole point of being deceived, isn't it? It's in not realizing that you're deceived. It's in actually believing the lie. Well, the scripture says that's the natural condition of your heart. It is self-deceived. So tell me once again where your confidence in the Scripture's meaning comes from. Can you at least understand what they're wrestling with? There's no inherent problem with the idea of saying that the Scripture alone is authority, is authoritative. The problem arises when you start to realize that our interaction with the Scripture is never truly alone. There's always this other element involved called the interpreter. And his fallen heart disrupts our understanding of the Scripture. The Scripture should be the authority, for it alone is the inspired Word of God. And so long as our interpretation of the Scripture is accurate, that alone should carry sway in our lives. But how can we ensure that our interpretation of the Scripture is accurate? And that leads us to the second thing that these apostates get right. And that's the role the church plays in correcting this confusion. See, how do you counter self-deceit? How do you discover where your heart is leading you astray when the problem is inside of you? The answer is with the church. It can help provide an objective perspective on what you're wrestling with. See, the nature of self-deceit is that you're led astray by your weaknesses and idolatry. Not only do you lack the relevant information, but you also have your own particular idols that tempt you to twist the Scripture to fit your own desires, even if you don't realize it. Again, it isn't always necessarily a willful rebellion. It's just that you are self-deceived. Presumably, the rest of the church isn't going to share those exact same weaknesses in sin. 
I mean, they may share your love of money, for instance, but say your love for money is being worked out in some decision you're making personally that's going to satisfy that desire for the love of money. The church isn't going to share the exact same application of that love of money because the decision isn't going to benefit them in the same way. They aren't going to to receive the same uh, joy or whatever from it. And that allows them to look at the situation with some clarity and say, your vision is probably being twisted by your idol. We think you're misapplying the scripture for personal gain. This is the beauty of what Jesus is outlining here in Matthew 18. It's more than possible for various members of the body to malfunction and misinterpret the scripture on one or two points, even when they want to be submitted to the scripture. It's much more difficult for that to happen in the entire church or even most of the church at the same time. Again, that's not to say it's impossible. Remember, there are conditions that the rest of the church has to meet to function in this capacity. But when they do meet those conditions, then the church functions as a remarkable safeguard against the deceitfulness of our own hearts. So again, I think these men get that part right. They're understanding that the church should play a significant role in the interpretation of Scripture and that this actually helps preserve the Christian's confidence in the knowability of Scripture. If you stop and think about it, they're even right in saying that we must emphasize the unity of the church because, again, it says the whole church is engaged in this process that we arrive at mature manhood into the knowledge of the Son of God. What they get wrong is in thinking that these points necessitate a conversion to Catholicism. It doesn't. But why are they wrong? Why doesn't it necessitate that? Of course, I would imagine the reason you're not Catholic is because you believe the Catholic Church's teachings to go contrary to the Scripture. But think about it. If Matthew 18 is indicating that we should regard the Church's rulings on Scripture as authoritative because the body of Christ is indwelled by the Spirit of Christ and He guides them through these decisions then what basis do you have to split from that organization for that reason anyways? Essentially, who do you think you are that you can decide for yourself what you think the Scripture says and act according to that conviction? This is basically the question that the Catholic Church asked Luther when they told him to recant. They pointed to the historical witness of the Church and they asked Luther, who he thought he was to go against the united witness of the church. And Luther stood his ground and contended with the Catholic Church anyways, even to the point of eventually separating from it. How could he do that, based on what Matthew 18 says? That's more or less the question that I want to explore with you together next week. And the reason I want to explore that with you is not to rail against Catholicism or something like that. Rather, I want to work through this with you because I think that dilemma illustrates for us some of the challenges that are going to arise as we adopt this kind of a position on mediation. You see, what I'm telling you this morning is that there are actually moments 
when you should probably defer to the judgment of the church. Meaning there are moments when the collective witness of the saints tells you that you're wrong on a particular issue and you submit to their judgment even when you may not personally agree with it. I mean, that's the whole point of passages like Matthew 18. The church is telling this Christian, you're bound to obey this standard. And when the Christian says no, even still, they evict him from the church. And Christ says that when this happens, the Christian isn't just disobeying, disobeying the church, they're disobeying him. Now, does that maybe rub you the wrong way a little bit? If so, I think that's good. And I don't think it's just because of this independent streak that I've been talking about. No doubt that probably is one of the reasons why this idea might offend us. And if so, we need to put that part of us away. But there's another reason why you may take offense at what I'm saying here today, and it's entirely biblical. And what I want to do next week is explore that reason with you, and hopefully this will shed some more light on what it looks like to contend for agreement in the body of Christ. In particular, I hope it will help you understand when you should defer judgment to the church and when you should not. I've been saying for a couple of weeks now that we can't read texts in isolation from each other, that we have to harmonize, harmonize the Bible's teaching on one subject with its teaching on another. That's what we're going to do next week as we continue our discussion of gospel-minded agreement. We're going to harmonize passages like Matthew 18 and Ephesians 4 with the rest of the Scripture. And hopefully this will give us an even clearer picture of what Paul has in mind as he urges the church to help Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Let's pray.